right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect anything different? Well, usually when we have two guests on, I have to like try to direct questions, like try to say, like get voice identification here, but mm-hmm. do different accents. This makes it totally easy. But most of the time, people confuse me for an American. Well, now. that's what I wanted. The first question Particularly I had was like to Australia. Your accent. Yeah. Cameron McCormick and Corey Lumberg were here with at the Altus Performance Center. But hey, how much do you get a lot of shit for your accent and my hybrid accent? Because sometimes I'm like, is he American? Is he Australian? <laughs> the answer is it depends. It depends on what I'm doing. Like if someone's watching the TV show that I did for Golf Channel then they'll be confused. Is he Australian? Is he English? Is he American? If they're in a lesson with me, then it depends. But if I'm talking to Australian, I sound like a what, what they would call in Australia a dinky die Aussie. <laughs> yeah. So dinky die is legit. It's, yeah, dinky. for real. Yeah, so we did a study tour with Cricket Australia, and we had all these coaches come in. They're kind of like hard, like Aussies. And then Cameron starts talking to them, and I'm like, who the hell is this? Like he got like this real like serious Australian accent all of a sudden. Oh like, yeah, oh, it changes yeah. when you go it home. Fully blown Aussie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what brought you to the United States? How did you get here? What's your what's the, what's the background story here for those that don't know? Yeah, got out of high school. Was an Aussie, Aussie rules football player. And what, what part of uh, Melbourne, uh, Australia? Okay, yeah, yeah, right. With the same area the Presidents Cup was just uh, held in. Yeah, grew up uh, Melbourne, Australia. Aussie rules football player, and everyone around me was growing up bigger and stronger, faster than I was. And I started playing golf at age sixteen. And at age seventeen, I caddied on the Australasian PGA Tour for two guys that just graduated and came down to cut their teeth on tour down there. And they were both Americans. Went to Texas Tech. And I didn't know pre-internet days that there was an opportunity to go to school and also play a sport you loved. And they told me about it and then connected me with a couple of coaches over here. So in uh, 1991, I came across as a 19-year-old and uh, entered a junior college in Kansas. So I came to play college golf, played two years at junior college, and then went to Texas Tech, given the uh, initial connection that I had. And uh, three years at Tech, met my my wife my, my senior year. And uh, now I'm an American citizen. And Corey, how did you, what's your first interaction with Cameron? How did you guys meet and how did you guys end up uh, working together? He doesn't remember. He acts like he doesn't remember it. We played golf together one time when I was an assistant, like assistant golf professional here, which is where, how I started out of, out of school. Truth be told, he was a cot boy. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, <laughs> I was. Absolutely. Aspirations to be an assistant pro. <laughs> which is, maybe speaks to why he didn't remember playing golf with me. But we, we kind of, Cameron's 10 years older than me and he was... Um, just further down the path of coaching. And I was, uh, we kind of went through a lot of the same educational pursuits. And so we got to know each other a little bit. And he was definitely dominating the Texas market and especially junior golf at that time. And so I sought him out and we kind of, a, a friendship blossomed and definitely came out of, you know, selfishly my desire to learn more and from a mentorship. And then, uh, like I said, became good friends. And we started Altus four years ago, the opportunity to kind of team up and to be partners. And, you know, like you guys, we want to do stuff that we like doing with our friends. And my friend, you know, happened to be the best golf coach in the world. It's quite a a place to come to work every day. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, so it's been a fun little ride that we've had, for sure. We'll have some video stuff that'll be coming out in the future from uh, from some stuff we shot on this trip here, but uh, you guys also have your own podcast you do. What's what's the, what's what if people go to, go to your podcast feed, what are are people going to find there? Yeah, so we started it because at the end of 2016, 
or 17. In, no, was, in 2017. Yeah, we started, if you, I hope that your videos have some B-roll of the, what's on the wall to our right here, which is uh, the banners of all the major championships and USGA championships. And there was a period of time where a lot of that was happening. A lot of winning was happening at the same time. And so we wanted to make sure that we knew what was in the water to where we should, we could sustain that. And so we had a bunch of interviews with the players that we coached just to try to identify some commonalities. What do we, what are we doing well that we need to keep on doing? And then out of that were just some unbelievable stories that our players told that with their permission, we later said, all right, we're going to make this into a podcast and share it. And so we kind of uh, cut together some of those interviews and then continued on. And we're talking to players and coaches and even authors, just anybody in anybody that's an expert or has something, some kind of commentary on high performance and how to pursue it. And how can we decode that and uh, help others on that, on their journey? So that's give, the idea. Give us a taste of who you work with. I think Jordan Spieth is probably the one you guys are best known for working for, but who a lot of, a lot of names. Every time I come here, I'm like, Oh yeah, I forgot they work with that guy too. That girl too. Who, who are the, uh, the, the names that stick out or the, uh, the professionals you work with and, uh, and top amateurs. Yeah. Professional tours, uh, Jordan Spieth, uh, Bo Hostler, uh, Kramer Hickok, uh, Daniel Berger across the ladies, uh, Soyeon Yu, Sandra Gall, Mi Young Lee, Celine Boutier. Yeah. Uh, Andre Provan on the European tour and then Harry Higgs on PJ tour and, and Charlie Saxon. And then, you know, a lot of our clients, I'd say 99.9% of our clients are pursuing some level of competitive golf, whether that be a youth golfer trying to get a college scholarship or college golfers or those in the very early stages of their professional career. So that's kind of what we're immersed in. How different is a practice session, a training session in here with the top players, the guys that are playing on the PGA Tour versus the guys playing on the developmental tours versus the amateurs that haven't even turned pro? If I'm walking in off the street and I'm viewing those sessions, what would I notice that's different about them? You wouldn't notice much difference in the sessions per se unless you saw two players at totally different uh, stages in their season, in their competitive season. Uh, so let's say that you saw a developing youth player that's playing in high school, playing AJGA events in the middle of their competitive season, and you saw one of the professional clients, you wouldn't notice a difference in terms of what we're doing other than addressing those specific needs or errors that the person's presenting with, but you would see a much greater level of ball control. And that's clearly what differentiates the best in the world from those that has, have aspirations to be best in the world. What's the difference with, um, let's, let's take Jordan Spieth, for example. He has been the 10th ranked player in the world before, and he's been the first ranked player in the world. Mm -hmm. What's the difference between the 10th ranked player in the world and the first? Take a stab at it, Corey. Well, like, what is well, he? There, there's not. I mean, if you look at the <laughs> yeah, top really 10 players, not. if you look at the top 10 players in the world right now, there's, I think, at least six or seven have been a number one, have been the number one player. Yeah. I think maybe John Rahman maybe Cantley are the only ones that have not. So it's when did they get hot? When did they play their best golf? And then the, you know, no one is exempt from the ebbs and flows of competitive golf. And did you play really, really well at the events with the most ranking points? Uh, and, you know, everyone kind of has those runs. Like right now, Brooks is kind of on those run. Well, there's going to come a time where it's not as, he, it's not as easy as he makes it. No, it, it has for, it's happened for everybody. And so those top 10 golfers, there's, they're interchangeable. I'll, I'll ballpark it for you and go with the difference between the 100th ranked player in the world versus the first ranked player in the world is one stroke per round, but you can fact check that in scoring averages. The difference between the 50th ranked player in the world versus the 100th ranked, ranked player in the world would be to the tune of maybe a half stroke. And so you, when you get to the difference between 10th and first, it could be as little as 10th of a stroke. Yeah. And, and then looking at the, the, the conversation between the 50th and the 
top 10 is probably a more interesting conversation because then you have to figure out figure in which tournaments they're playing in. So what kind of opportunity do they have? And, and I think that Cameron, I think you'd agree that the difference in maybe those top 20 are just how consistently they're finishing very, very highly. So there's maybe a consistency sure. uh, answer in there. What, what do you say to a player that is just red hot? Like when Jordan keep doing like, it, like yeah. Yeah. You, know, you just just keep nodding, wash, wash yeah. rinse, and repeat. Well, that's what I wonder is <laughs> like when, back. when someone is is red hot. Are you trying to in that in that time period? Are you trying to get them to understand what is making them red hot, or do you want their minds as clear as possible? Minds, I imagine is, minds as clear as possible, and you're still trying to solve problems. You're still looking for is there a tenth of a stroke here? Is there a tenth of a stroke there? Even within the context of an amazing run, whether that run is the normal run for a PGA Tour player getting hot for four to six weeks and they make the entirety of their, well, the 75% of the season's earnings in that time frame, or whether it's the guys that scale the world rankings moving from 200th into the top 10, where they, may play, may, they might play well for a period of time that might be 12 months. In those phases of performance, you still have, have ebbs and flows. You, you still have uh, peaks and valleys within each skill set of putting and greenside play and approach play and driving. So you're still solving problems, but the problems are most of the time easy to solve and very nuanced and, and, and obvious. What is, if you're watching one of your players on TV, how well on TV can you tell like, oh, that's not going right. That's not something's. Can you tell when you're watching something like, hey, I know he's not doing that right. I can, can't wait to talk to him after the round. How obvious is it, or do you need to be visit like seeing it in person? You can't replace being there in person because you have context, at least a greater context than you do have on TV. You've got uh, the events that are happening around you, other players, the uh, what you hear, what you see, what you feel in the in the uh, weather conditions, um, and you also catch conversations, conversations that happen between player and caddy. Uh, conversations happen between player and golf ball, we've all heard. And uh, yeah, so there's information that you can pick up on that could be beneficial. But still, when you're watching on TV and you know a player just like as almost as well as they knew themselves, you can pick up on the nuances that uh, become conversation points. How do you think the player-coach uh, relationship kind of starts? Meaning like how do, how do you pick a player? How does a player pick you? There's so many players out there. There's so many coaches out there. I'm, I'm curious how... Uh, how the bonds kind of get I, forged. I Sell just, yourself here too. I just yeah. walk up and down the range at every tour event I go Here's to and hand out card. business cards. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how, tips. How else are you supposed to do it? You don't even need the business card. Just yeah, start coaching them right down, right down the line. Corey slipped some hundreds, I think. <laughs> Whatever it takes. I think that, that we have somewhat of a reputation. So we're going to attract players that are kind of aligned philosophically. And, and I think that as more people know what we do, that we just attract a certain type of player. And so I think that it would... Um, it would be weird if someone that came to us that was just totally off of just agreeing or, or in agreement with how we do things, that would be weird. I don't think that that would happen very often. So I think that's how it starts. And then obviously from there, when you have those similarities, it's it's a little easier to get along and uh, kind of mesh well together. It's, it's definitely a flow that comes towards the coach versus the coach going out and actively recruiting players, right. at least as far as I'm concerned and in my experience being around other coaches. And, you know, what I described earlier, it couldn't be further from the truth. My presence out on tour is hopefully one that people – 
don't recognize me and don't know that I'm out there. And when I'm walking with Tiger Woods and Ricky Fowler and Justin Thomas and Jordan Spieth in the US Open practice round group at Pebble Beach, I'm 50, 60 yards away from the uh, player caddy and I'm only walking in when I'm absolutely necessary, when I've got something to contribute that I feel is going to be beneficial. Uh, So I guess if you polled players that are on the PGA European or LPGA Tour, they might even say, well, Cameron's kind of aloof. He kind of sits across to the side and doesn't say much. And there are a number of coaches that Uh, walk like that and talk like that and behave like that out there because they recognize their place. They're not in the mix and they're not trying to be part of the show. So that's how I treat that. And if that means that mm, I may not garner the business that otherwise would, then, then so be it. All right, a really quick break here. I have to update you guys on something. I mean, everyone, I mean, almost everyone has been asking me, coming up to me, in the street saying, Solly, when are you going to put a new putter in the bag? You had that same Odyssey putter for like two and a half years. It's time to make a change. Chad at Callaway, before he left us, was desperately trying to get me a new putter. And I just had to let you guys know, I've made the change. I've done it. I've seen the light. I put the Odyssey Stroke Lab 10 putter in the bag to start the new year. Uh, it's the putter that Odyssey released towards the end of last year. And uh, in its first week on tour, it was the most played Odyssey putter model, which says a lot because of how many models that Odyssey has. Phil's put it in play a few times. Dylan Fratelli's been using it, and a hoist of others have it in the bag. I got to admit, I didn't really know what Stroke Lab technology was until I helped. Somebody explained it to me. I'm not going to try to relay it to you, but the, the important piece to know is that the technology in it helps improve the consistency of the face angle of the putter at impact. And that's what I was actually really struggling with. The ball was just coming off left sometimes, coming off right. And it's a putter that I wouldn't, the look of it isn't the, hasn't been the most appealing to me in the past until I actually tried it. I'm not going to pretend to understand all the technology behind it, but I'm totally sold on it. Uh, I've been shooting some pretty good scores here in the first week of the year, and my confidence on the greens has skyrocketed. So for more on the Odyssey Stroke Lab 10, visit odysseygolf.com. Again, that's odysseygolf.com. Now let's get back to Cameron McCormick and Corey Lundberg. So correct me if I'm wrong on this, but... I would think that has there has to be an inflection point for a coach, right? Where mm-hmm. eventually things start to become inbound more than more than recruiting. Oh, sure. You know, yeah. so so take yeah. me to when did that inflection point happen for you? Because yeah, I stopped hunting and started just farming the inbounds. <laughs> yeah. When uh, or talking, you know what I mean? Take me it, to like the it, earlier days right. and, and what that was like. Yeah, so different levels. I started. Uh, Receiving more inbounds, I remember a kid that played AJGA level golf. He was a separator, but he wasn't one of the best. But he started getting invitationals, um, and his name doesn't really matter because no one would know him these days. He's not playing anymore. Uh, but he started playing in invitationals and playing really well. And that in the local community of Dallas-Fort Worth here started to bring these inbounds in. And then one of those inbounds was 2006 when Jordan's dad called me and said, hey, can I bring my son by? He's pretty darn good and never had much instruction, if any at all. And I want you to take a look. We're in the market for a coach. And then he started winning invitationals at 14, 15 years old. And then it was just a flow of junior golfers from that point. And I think if we look back now, five of the last nine U.S. Junior junior champions have come through uh, my coaching and also performance here. And then that turned into uh, professional ranks as he grew and I had other professional players at the same time. So it kind of happens in phases. Yeah, you you can't expect to to coach the uh, best junior player in the country or the world and that for for that to bring in professional clients. But as soon as you get uh, a successful professional client, 
then that, that can change things. I'm sure it's a story you've told a bazillion times, but uh, talk to me about the first lesson with him, what your first meeting with him, all, all that stuff, paint a picture of what yeah. he was like. Uh, two weeks shy of his uh, 13th birthday, middle of the summer in Dallas, he comes in and he just had played in a tournament called Starburst. And it's a 54-hole tournament held at Waco and the quality of the golf courses aren't great. Played an Air Force, Air Force golf course where the size of the ground cracks are about the width of a golf ball. So you can lose a golf ball in a ground crack and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for coming. The truest hazard. Yeah, yeah. And he, um, we sit down and we talk. We talk for at least 30, 45 minutes, um, Jordan and myself and his dad. And uh, one of the questions I asked him was, well, what do you want to do in golf? What can I help you achieve? What goals do you have? And the first one he said is, I want to win the Masters. I'm like, cool, let's go do it. 12 years old. And then uh, we start hitting balls and he's got a really funky idios- idiosyncratic movement, but my goodness, could he control the ball and get hit all the shots. Um, I oftentimes reflect back on the notes that I take in lessons and uh, I'd never seen it before out of someone so young. I'd, I'd coached some professional players to that point, but this was just otherworldly. So I turned off all my gadgets, my video, my track man. And I said, let's go play golf. I got to see this on the golf course. And he had supreme confidence and well in what he was as well in what he was doing. Um, we t- went to the golf course. We played nine holes. I was awfully impressed. He shot even par. And uh, it would be wrong to skip over the main story that I tell from that experience is I didn't see him hit many short game shots because he was hitting all fairways and all greens. <laughs> and I said, well, Jordan, I've got to test this short game that you're so confident with. And so I gave him this challenge. And the challenge was to get up and down three different spots on three different holes. And he's not doing great. And we get to the last hole, playing it out. He, he, he makes par and I give him three up and down opportunities. And there was a prize. It was an incentive for how well he, um, he was going to perform. And he needed to essentially uh, hold two shots and get the, other, the third ball up and down to win this prize. And he proceeds to hold the first one, short chip from off the fringe, get the next bunker shot up and down by hitting it to like a couple of inches, maybe a foot away. And then the last shot, I picked the most difficult possible shot that I could find on the green. He looks at me, he gives me a grin, and he proceeds to hold this flop shot. <laughs> <laughs> to to win what then was a very minor prize, but a major one in his mind, which was a hat from the golf shop that I was at. And you know what? The, the, the moral of the story, the point of the story is this kid showed up with such assurance, such a like psychological advantage, a, a self-belief that he could get it done and set the goals, the, the bar really high and said, I'm going to chase him down. Wow. I've never, I've never heard that story. I'm sure you've told that one before. I've told it heard millions that. of times. Every time I tell, I'm like... I wonder how long I should take to tell the story because it could go on and on and on. <laughs> I've heard it before and I'm okay. like I'm like on the edge of my seat. So I'm like, oh, good. Good. yeah, I knew he's going to hold the last one. But yeah. Nice. So what do you, for? let's take Jordan, for example, like for from that state, stage, like what, what did you help him with? What what was his swing like when you picked him up? To What were the first things you work on to, to take him to the next level? If I had to describe it, I would have said he came with an extremely strong grip the club had moved quickly inside underneath the handle and open face such that it looked like he was about to hit a bunker shot rather than a, a full drive from an approach shot. And from there, he shallowed the club out and had this release pattern that one would describe as kind of flip draw, where the club head went underneath the handle really quickly and he stood up in his toes. So he had a lot, a lot of stuff going on. Having said that, that first day, he demonstrated such great ball control and he came off winning that golf tournament and playing quite well in lots of golf tournaments that summer. I said, we're not going to do anything. And he looks at me, puppy dog eyes, like so disappointed. And I said, well, dude, it's in your best interest to continue with the confidence you have and the ball control you have, but 
come back here in two or three months time when your season's done and we'll get started because he was about to start playing AJGA level golf. So we had to do some some swing stuff. In fact, a lot of swing stuff. If I showed you a video, which we'll do off air here, um, of his swing when he was 12, 13 years old, you would have been jaw to the floor like a gas. How could a kid go out and shoot 63 with that and regularly shoot under par? But he did. And the reason we had to change is he was small for size, needed to hit it higher and further. So we had to capture more, uh, more speed out of that frame. Uh, so that was the early work. And then beyond that, I remember probably three out of every six weeks, we would, we would meet out at Brook Hollow on a Monday and I would pair him up with the best players I could find on that Monday. Test him against players that were playing back then, the, the web.com, now the Corn Ferry Tour, uh, a couple of times a PGA Tour player, but more often than not, mini tour players. Players that stepped to the tee, looked at this 13, 14, 50 year old and said, we can't play for money against this kid. I'm like, no, yeah, you can. I'll take him as my partner. And regularly we'd go out on a Monday, three out of every six weeks, and he would strap them. Now, as I said, he, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't contribute very much. So it was, it was really fun watching a player develop techniques that caused them to have better ball control, but watch a player go out there and use those new techniques to demonstrate better skill and, and, and um, continue to beat players. Well, and he came out so fast and almost won the Masters at age 20 mm-hmm. and then wins it at age 21. Yep. I don't even know what I, what question I have in relation to that. I mean, did you, you obviously saw something in him in that phase, but were you even surprised at that level of success at that age? There are many things that stand out of my mind, but one that, one that stands out really well, and it didn't end well in, a, in terms of performance, was when he got a sponsor's exemption into Tiger's event when it was at Congressional. He's still an amateur, still in college. And he comes probably five days, five days before leaving for a practice session. And it may have been, fact check this, he's fifth or sixth professional event as an amateur. And he made the cut two or three, maybe four times. I think he was probably five or seven or six of eight in, prof- in professional cuts made as an amateur. And he looks at me at the end of the session. He's like, I'm going to go win this thing. <laughs> I said nothing. I was like, sweet, let's go do it. Yeah. I, I wasn't going to the event, but uh, the confidence that he had and the, that self-belief stood out on many, many an, an occasion. So I guess going back to your question, was I ever surprised? No. There were so many, are you kidding me? This, this is just amazing. Hmm. What is, and I know it's a, you're, you're in an unenviable situation with your clients and what you can say about things that are currently going on. Well, have you seen that confidence waver recently, or what? What are you Things able? Things were going so well. I know it's, we have to ask. You know, oh, we have it's, to. It's ask. more than just a bandaid you're ripping off. You're taking stitches out of an open wound. Come on, man. You know, we have to ask. I know we're sensitive to. You know, you, you can't talk about something, but what can you talk about on that front? Yeah, given the privileged position that I'm in, not only with the clients that I get to work with in private, but also the places you get to go and the people you get to hang with. I don't tell stories, and I don't. Um, uh, I mean, I appreciate the privilege that I have and also the confidence that they, they provide in me. Uh, I will say this, that he's a whole lot closer to the Jordan Spieth that we all know and love than anyone could possibly understand. He believes that. Everyone around him believes that. Everyone sees the scoring potential. So many 36-hole, um, maybe not leads, but there were several of them last year. Uh, the first round and second round scoring average, uh, I think second in second round scoring average and maybe top 10 in first round scoring average. So those are all indicators that uh, the ship is writing 
and good things are coming. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's perfect. Um, <laughs> and I hate you now. <laughs> well, we have a list that we keep. We keep this list right now, and we just, we just added you to that list. I'm on the list. Yeah. There's, a, there's a hate list. Exactly. Hey, uh, I'm a trusted no. journalist. <laughs> you know? Bulletin board material. You know, no, it's I'm not a hate list. It's just the, the list that we've got some messages to that we're going to send to. Uh, when the, the Christmas card list? Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, sweet. Yeah. <laughs> the Christmas card. Second, second week of April next year. Exactly. After, uh, yeah. We cannot oh, wait were you watching? Did you see what happened? The only reason I felt comfortable that I was able to ask is he talked specifically about these issues on this exact podcast. Gotcha. That's, yeah. Yeah, that's the only reason why. Yeah, but, yeah. I recall listening. Well, one thing I wanted to, to talk, and Corey, you know, we've, you and I have spent, prior to today, we did some work today. Cameron was nice enough to spend some time working on my swing. But some, some of the ways you talked to me in the past, Corey, about the golf swing and how you approach drilling things in was very interesting to me as a way I've never really thought about it before and the, the, the process of calling plays. And my interpretation of that was, you weren't trying to necessarily just come in and fix my swing, say, do this, do this, do this. It was like, hey, let's try this to get this activated. Can you explain that concept of like of calling plays? Yeah, and the context of that is that all four of you guys came in in an hour and were like, hey, could you could you look at our swings? And I was like, oh, okay, that's a lot to do. So I don't even about, think it was an hour. Yeah, right. So I've got, because you guys were going to go play 24. So I had 15 minutes with each of you guys. Like speed dating. Yeah, exactly. DJ didn't that's, even, that's really well yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what it was like. You didn't even get a lesson that day? I think I hit two two balls. Yeah. 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 Oh, I thought Osmosis was, then. You yeah. got better by osmosis. That was, yeah. you, just being you're, you're thinking of the church of Westlake. That's right. That's <laughs> that was, I, ref- oh. I want to have you know, I, is, I completely refuted a Genkis Exactly. <laughs> I, was like, I, I was like, guys, I'm loyal. I, I yeah. can't possibly. I, I got a message. Go down this road. I got a message from Corey immediately after yeah. that. Said, Don't let him mess with that trail arm. Yeah. So before Corey answers that, you said the church at Westlake. Yeah. What's Altus here? What's yeah. Trinity Forest called then? This is Ooh, a sanctuary. Had, yeah, you're put me, yeah, you're putting me on the spot. Uh, let me think about that. Okay. Think okay. About that. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a shrine. It, yeah, it's much, much more shriney than. Uh, I like that. The church. Yeah. I mean, it's just absolutely beautiful. Well, here. clearly, it, this whole place feels like you know. I'm thinking. Yeah. About Mecca. This is this is like a Joel Austin level. It's a mega church. Uh, yeah, and I was gonna say, like, starting out, I'm like, God, this whole thing feels like such a such a commercial for for Altus. But when you come here and you see it, you're like, no, this is really freaking cool. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's what I think we're trying to convey here is like what you guys have built here. And I don't know if you can describe it because probably not a lot of people have seen it or seen video of it or whatever, but. Like describe where where we're at here, what what this facility is like, what it looks like, all, all of that kind of I'm, stuff. Cameron's really good because Cameron really had a lot to do with why we're here, and I mean everything to do with why we're here, and then also what this place looked like and designing it the way that it is. Well, I guess we're sitting on an old landfill from the 1960s in down well six miles, five miles south of Dallas, and not to get too long winded because we're probably pressed for time. And Corey definitely needs to answer the question about plays. Yeah, <laughs> but we're we're sitting in a ten thousand square foot teaching center that has a putting lab, four hitting bays, is home to both Altus and also SMU men's and women's golf uh, tools and technology out the wazoo. We've got gears, we got swing cat, we've got uh, Sam Putt Lab, we've got Capto. The list goes on. We've got all the tools and resources, but more than that is we've got the right people here, um, an array of professional and amateur players that are all kind of um, contributing to rising everyone's boat, right? Rising tides float, floats all boats. We're sitting on 64 acres of just practice space. So to put it into context, I think Marion is built on 108. <laughs> that was exactly what popped into my head. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, redonkulous. So yeah. we've got par three course. It's called the horse course. 
Uh, we've got a driving range that's 400 yards end to end. Um, we've got all the right things to make players better, um, just as long as the coaching coming out of it is good. So, Corey. <laughs> yeah, so that's why we call a good place. <laughs> So you're right in that you picked up on the fact that we're not just going to direct you and say, hey, you need to do this. You have to do it this way. What we found is that um, really good coaches have the deepest playbook, meaning we identify something that we, we know that needs to change. And there's not just one way to do that. And because everyone's a little bit different, they're going to respond to different things, right? So the best coaches have the deepest playbook, but they also call the right play first most of the time. And that's what really separates good coaches from maybe not so good coaches. And so when you guys were in, it's like we identified something that we needed to do. And I told you, look, there's a bunch of ways we can do this. We're going to call a couple of plays and we're going to see if we can score the touchdown uh, with one of them. And I think another thing that it does is it takes a little bit of the pressure off of you, the student, to to perform perfectly right away. Right. Because it can be a little bit uh, intimidating to walk into a golf lesson, especially as you said, to the, the the shrine here. I mean, it, it, I can see how it could be a little bit much. And especially when you're signing up to be evaluated and judged by us. And so we want to ease that a little bit and say, Cameron's really good. At, and w when he starts with someone and it's something that I've stolen from him to where he says, I'm going to call this play. And every bad shot that you hit right now is on me because I'm the one who called this play. So don't worry about any bad shots. We're going to find the right play that works for you. So there, there's multiple reasons why we kind of frame it like that uh, with calling plays. That's and how I took it too, and what I the, what you, again we spent like five minutes. So you you said like go practice this on the range, right? Yeah. Put a put a tour striker ball between your elbows, work on that to, to you know square up your uh, your trail arm, your right arm to keep it from flaring, and then you got to work on uh, the swing guide, which is something that stri restricted my backswing to keep me from going that. But like what I took away from that was all right. These are things for the range. Like you're going to go practice these on the range. You're going to drill, but when you go out to play golf. You're not thinking about your trail arm, right? You've practiced it. Like that's what the range time was for. How do you, is, is that a common lesson that you feel like you're teaching, you know, your players in that, Hey, this is what we're working on here. But when you go play golf, don't, don't be like thinking that specifically, you're going to work on it here. So it works out there. Yeah. So the, and that's the maybe biggest difference than coaching you a recreational player. And the reality is, is that you're not going to put the same amount of hours into making that change as the professional or the competitive players here. And so that's one huge obstacle that we're up against with these players that we've got here. We know that they're efficient, they're smart with how they're practicing. And so there certainly is a separation between what practice mode is and then what performance mode is. And so a lot of times that we've got to assign what the performance or what we call form work uh, sorry, the, the practice of form work, what that looks like. Here are the tasks that you're going to do. And now here are a couple tasks that help you blend in what it's actually going to be on the golf course. And I think when we're at, on the golf course on a Monday through Wednesday at a tournament, hopefully we're in that performance mode the whole time we're working on skills. But the reality is, is sometimes we've got to actually do some form work and we're trying to make it as minimally, minimally invasive as possible so that then it actually does show up when they're out there playing. The expression you use often is shift to play. Right. I think it's a great way to express it. You want to describe Yeah. So we'll do, we'll do kind of some drills where, um, I really like to use like three ball sets or four ball sets to where uh, I've got three balls in front of you and we're going full form mode. Like you're thinking about all of the internal technical cues that I've given you. And then the next three ball set, we're going to kind of shift a little bit. We're going to shift our focus more external to where finally the last three, we're trying to be as target oriented as we can. I think that a lot of players 
um, we have this argument a lot. They expect to be able to play their best golf without any technical cues. And yeah, that's true for about 2.5% of the rounds that they'll play for the rest of their life, that they're not going to have any technical thoughts. And, and that's not my opinion. That's stuff that we've talked to the best players in the world that have you know, inform that opinion that we have. And so it's okay if you have some kind of a, a cue that you're paying attention to, and I think completely reasonable, but we want you to be able to, to perform those changes that we've prescribed in a way where you can still like play golf. You're not playing golf swing as it's said so many times. So there, there's, I don't know the right way to ask this question, but there's so much out there about the golf swing, right? Like there's, there is, there's yeah. so much that's been written. There's so many improvement articles or so, like, like all I'm of this sure stuff. you guys disagree on some things about the golf swing at times. Undoubtedly. And that's yeah. what I was going to kind of get at is like, how do you inform your opinions of, of the golf swing? Well, the good thing sense. is you can have an opinion, but then you can road test that, can't you? Yeah. You can road test if it's effective. And it's one, well, I guess there's something also to be said for what's that timeline for effectiveness. And that's where we go back and almost make the request in advance of like, hey, we're going to try these things. If option A or play A doesn't work, then we'll go to play B. And eventually we're going to get to the end of scoring a touchdown or for you hitting better shots. So give me five swings, give me 10 swings, because after that, most definitely you're going to have what you need. So going back to the question, how do you really kind of differentiate? It's it's the ball. The ball's the barometer. And far too often, like me as a rookie coach, I remember my first year and a half, two years of coaching, it was garbage. It was garbage because I, w- I was the one standing there saying, no, you didn't do it correctly. That's why the ball didn't, didn't, yeah. uh, didn't move correctly. I was a very form and then method-based uh, coach. And then I shifted. I shifted because I traveled around the country and I watched the best coaches do it from Butch Harmon to David Ledbetter to Chuck Cook and the list goes on. And I recognized they did it dramatically different than I do it. You look at a rookie coach and they're very prescriptive. Here are the positions or the... the um, uh, that you need to hit in your swing in order to play better, whatever that standard of better is for that player. But yet the best coaches said, oh, okay, we're going to do this. If we try this, it's a little bit more of this. And, and all with the end of just controlling the ball and not being quite so elaborate and prescriptive in what they were describing. I don't know if, if Jordan is, you know, the direct correlation to that, but mm-hmm. uh, the question I had in my mind is like, what's the, the way that he's changed you as an instructor the most, do you think? Yeah, he was reinforcement when I was going through that learning, reinforcement that, oh my gosh, you can do it in a multitude of ways and still give the instructions to that little white thing that's sitting on the ground that has no concern for what your size is, what your gender is, and what your net worth is. Yeah, he was only reinforcement to that, and he was also um, not a nudge, but a heavy push in the direction of let idiosyncrasy flourish. So yeah. I would agree. I think that more than anything, I mean, the lesson that I learned is, is from their work together is that skills always trump style. And so not only are we trying to get you to swing it really, really good, but we're also trying to reinforce that with like skillfulness. Like, can you hit different types of shots? Can you adapt to different environments? Can you, uh, when you have your C game, can you figure out a way to have a good four days? Million dollar what, golf swings and missing the cut. Yeah, each no week. doubt. No mm. doubt. Right? Yeah. Each week. So yeah. that's what I was going to ask. So non-Altus players, who, who's your favorite player to watch? Uh, I, have, I have such a My son. Oh. Yeah. Well, he's an Altus player. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I always find myself on the range really close to Alex Noren. Like on the practice range, he's got a heavy man crush. I, I, such a man crush. I just love it so Solid, much. Solid, your thoughts, it, my boy. <laughs> listen, listen, it goes against everything that I just said on skill trump style because I just love the way that I mean, he's 
a technician. And so, again, it goes against what I just said, but he just grinds. Yeah, but he's doing it in an idiosyncratic way. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. that's true. There's no other player on the European Tour or PGA Tour he's out there practicing what he's practicing. He does not get He's rehearsing those maneuvers. I I watched at the players this year for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, I watched him cut chip shots oh, oh for sure i have video <laughs> of and, and andre I, I was just i felt like i was like stoned just yeah. sitting there the watching like, would have been four I inches deep, right this is the most amazing thing i I've always seen. get really wide <laughs> angles when i'm videoing andrea when he's there just so and yeah. i have this video of the cut wedge sorry shots andrea spinning sorry no he knows <laughs> well that's good to verify that i was actually seeing what you i thought are. i was seeing. absolutely my okay. favorite part of these guys stories is how exaggerated the time frames get <laughs> we watched him do it for like four minutes i was right there with him to 30 minutes spent watching I went back after you left. (laughs) Well, I want to know, we talked a lot about the golf swing to this point, but where your guys' responsibilities for coaching players stops, and I don't think it really does, is the point of the question, and that coaching technical swing stuff is just part of the equation, right? And the two parts I want to get at is statistics and analytics and preparation of that, and then the next part being mental. And and mental being – I think I'm starting to just start to uncrack what the mental side of golf is like. How how to actually do it is the next part, but understanding what left brain and right brain means and things like that. I want to get to that. But from an analytic standpoint, what do you guys do with your clients to tell them what they're doing well, tell them what they need to improve on? How often are you giving that data to them? What's that look like? Harry basically was saying on the podcast, you guys don't even work on the swing, yeah, right? Exactly. Like you guys I, just you're finally giving me a chance yeah. to write the record here. Cameron for the last two weeks since y'all released that podcast has been calling me a sports psychologist very, <laughs> very pejoratively. So to all sports psychologists, you can take offense, but we'll get to the mental part in a little okay. bit. But as far as like the, the analytics, so use Harry as the example is the reason why he says we come in here and we, we sit in the office and talk is because if he's on a five week stretch and he comes back here, the first thing that we do is we tried to get a assessment on what went right and what went wrong. And so that when he has a short period of time, we're impacting those areas that are going to have a direct impact on, as Cameron said earlier, getting that half shot better. That obviously makes such a big difference in where you're ranked in the world. And so that's all we're trying to do. We're trying to get this appraisal of what's good and what's bad. Yeah. Yeah. What's it look like? I mean, what's, what's, is it a, a one spreadsheet that's printed out? Is it, well, even beyond pages? that, I was going to ask what might be a very stupid question. Do yeah. you guys have access to other stats from sure. the PJ Tour yeah, that, so, that sure. we don't have access to? Yeah. Or is it literally? So you have the shot link. We can info. look up any, okay. pl- any player that plays in that PGA Tour event. We can look at shot by shot. We can scatter plots, et cetera, et cetera. So the data sources are shot link. Uh, the data sources are caddies. The data sources are the players. But looking at like just the stats alone is only one point right. of reference, isn't it? Yeah. Right? Like the stats are like a bikini. They show you a lot, <laughs> but they don't show you everything. What they reveal is key. Yes, exactly. Uh-huh. So it's what very, it's very important key. for us to sit down with our clients and have that conversation, peel the layers of the onion back beyond just the analysis, just but just beyond the data to understand the context of what was going on in the event, what were you trying to accomplish and how far off what the intent was, the execution was, meaning that where the ball ended up, right? So um, yeah, those conversations last 15, 20, 30, 45 minutes. Yeah, and then it, it becomes... The, the nice thing about that is then you've got these really short feedback loops to where now they've got, we've, we've determined what our game plan is. Here are the three things that we do want to see a positive uh, impact on. And then you've got another five week stretch and then we get to see how we did. 
did we have a good plan? Did you do what you were actually supposed to do? Or do we need to kind of retool something? Or was it just a form issue that was holding you back from that? Mm -hmm. So then we're able to uh, correct course as needed. And it's easy to kind of navigate that way throughout the year when you're informed that way. Going back to your original question, though, it's, it's hard to know where that line shifts because with each player, it's different. I've got a player that plays in the PGA Tour who has a home-based coach like Boots on the Ground who consults with me on a variety of different things. And everything that I do is filtered through that Boots on the Ground home-based coach. And that's how he wants to work. Uh, for a great number of my clients, I'm technical coach, I'm tactical coach, I am uh training coach, sports psychologist, psychologist. (laughs) Uh, sometimes even I'm making recommendations on travel. So yeah, I mean, the the line continues and uh, time is not the line either. I mean, I I fall asleep at night thinking about coaching the next day. I fall asleep at night thinking about what I've I've done in the previous hours that might be good or bad that I can try and improve on. Do do guys ever come to you and say like, "Ah, I just can't hit my irons right now. And then you look at the stats and like, they're hitting it great. Like, do do guys have a good perception of the things they're doing wrong? Undoubtedly, there's often incongruence between the stats and how a player feels. And that's almost always because the, the stats are lying, right? How a player feels standing over the ball needs to be the most important thing that you're moving in a, in a positive direction because standing over it with confidence knowing that you're about to execute what you intend is the most important thing which is why you know the stats are only a one data point we heard uh i love the podcast that saw that you you and harry did recently harry higgs and i'm curious Corey. you know we heard his perspective on you know kind of making the leap and what changed and and all that stuff. I'm curious for your perspective on. It was purely technical improvement. <laughs> <laughs> no, they got in touch with the target. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, no. I mean, there was there are some significant things that change form wise for him, and that they continue to change. And and he's really really works hard. Harry is a guy who who uh, is a funny guy. He's a lot of fun to be around, but he. he really does work really, really hard and is very serious about getting better, which is why he's made that leap. But I think more than anything, we identified what Harry does well when he plays great golf, which is something that everybody listening and everyone in the world needs to spend a little bit of time of taking stock of. Or when you're playing in your your best golf, what do you do? What do you look like? How do you act? How are you showing up? Uh, and when we got really, really clear about that, then it was a matter of holding him accountable to those things that he identified and having constant conversations are, are you living up to these things that you said that you would do in order to play your best golf? And he's, he's done an amazing job of that. His also, his prep has gotten a lot better. His Monday through Wednesday plan, his blueprint that he follows is really, really good. And that's allowed him to go from Latin America where he's seeing really different golf courses to now to Corn Ferry to now PGA Tour, all that success has translated really well because he's been consistent and effective in how he preps for those events. And for let's take Harry for example, if you can. And when I've you know people have asked me, I've talked to, to about working with you guys some as to what has changed, and I explain it kind of simply the things I've worked on. People seem actually genuinely interested in that you could like just understanding the actual details in what you're working on and what to look for and stuff like that. Can you can you explain to us like what what with Harry, like you guys work on, what do you, what, what has changed maybe in his swing in the last two years? It can be as small and minute as possible, but like, I don't, I never know when I'm watching pros and I know that they're working on something new or trying something. I never know what to look for. So I'm surprised there's not a massive smile coming over Corey's face right now that he gets to actually justify <laughs> yeah. the thing. Yeah, exactly. No, there's <laughs> no chance. So Harry's got like nine inches of pelvic sway 
on the way down in his downswing or to impact. You better which, define what pelvic sway is. Yeah, so pelvic sway is just his hips moving towards the target, basically. And so his lower body like laterally, laterally yeah. moves towards the target a ton. And he used to, his upper body in response to that fell way back behind. So we had this look of side bend, right? To where his right shoulder is really low to the ground is a way that you can think about it. And that resulted in some poor strikes, which is what he, he really, really complained about when he was playing his poor golf was just the strike was off. So he had no ball control. And then it also created some right misses for him too, because it pushed his path further right than what he wanted in order to hit a cut, which he does really, really well. It just drives it so good when he's hitting this hard, low cut. And so that became mission number one. And I think that I'm, another reason why I'm glad that you bring it up because it makes me think of another reason why he's done so well and why he's made this leap is because he has this understanding for what happens in his golf swing and for what is keeping him from better ball control. And he follows that blueprint religiously. He's not jumping around to a bunch of shit and throwing stuff at the wall and figuring out if, Hey, maybe, you know what? I saw someone else do this, or I saw, you know, Rory swings like this. I need to try to, he knows what he does really, really well. And he knows what he, what he needs to be doing and training and practice to get better at it. And he doesn't sway from that. And so that's another reason why I think he's made that blueprint or made that, that leap with that blueprint. Transitioning some to what I was kind of talking about on the mental side. I, I, I don't correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think like you guys are professionally trained in understanding mental psychology, or maybe a better question is what do you guys do to understand like psychology? Like the mental part of golf. Where did you learn how to teach that part? You learn it from players. You learn it from other sources of research, whether it be a book or um, podcasts. Uh, but you only really know what to talk about based on what the player is experiencing. So when they come back and they say, here's the challenge that I'm having as I'm standing over this type of shot, uh, then you start to design a strategy for that. But you're right, we're not degreed in any possible way. Uh, we're always looking for that next knowledge nugget or point of wisdom that, that we can translate when the time is right. And that's deep in the playbook as well. There are a multitude of those that don't, they're not the X's and O's of uh, how you would adjust a swing or uh, a ball flight, but they are certainly highly impactful on how players perform and how players even the performance of players and caddies together uh, is part of the, the, the kind of the coaching repertoire and the coaching kind of um, sphere influence. Do you do you guys get um, do you guys get nervous to dish out uh, to call plays? Basically, and, I, and I'm, again, I'm running a lot of this through Jordan. I know, but when yeah. when he's at the British Open and he's calling you and saying like, "Hey, I'm I'm not feeling great and I need to figure this out." You know, do you feel nervous calling a play? Do you feel an ownership of, of what's about to happen? If or you have, are you... ex- you have experience with a player yeah. that you've been coaching for a long time, then there should be no nervousness. Does there. it feel more? It feels you, more like science than, yeah, than art at that gen- point. Generally, you're solving for known problems. Yeah. Right? Known problems have known solutions uh, if you've solved them before. Uh, it's the problems that surface that you don't have solutions immediately to because you've never solved them before that give you um, some sense of trepidation or some sense of mm, I wonder if this is going to be the one that works the first time or we'll have to, have to go to option two so no not really one thing I feel like I've started when I was referring to starting to uncrack the mental side of golf which is I was, I was listening to an audiobook recently about about the mental side of golf and how when I feel like when I play my best golf, I'm not thinking golf swing when I'm on the golf course, right? I'm thinking targets. I'm playing targets. I never understood the difference between like being left brain and right brain and that 
you want as best as you can switching over your conscious to your right brain and letting your body take over is something that I was like, oh God, like that makes way more sense to me. Is that anywhere in line with what you guys teach in any way? Yeah, I think you're, you're speaking to focus of attention more than anything else there. And I think that that is a, that is a aspect of thinking more effectively on the golf course, but it's also, I, I go back to those times where you're going to have rounds of, of golf and tournaments to where you can think all about the target all you want and the ball is not going to go to the target. Correct. It's just yeah. not going to happen. Yeah. Right. And so you've got to have some solutions to it. So more of like your attention to focus, which I agree is an important thing and an important part of learning, but I would rather a player be equipped with, four or five different like mental strategies, like tools that they have that when shit hits the fan, when I face the inevitable adversity of a round, I've got these things kind of preloaded, these one, two, three or four things that I do. And again, maybe that can be spurred on by a caddy, like kind of helping get, get to those spots, but I want them to have those tools. And so that's part of the conversations that we have in here is like, you know, naming those tools, what are they and and how do we, how Letting them get fix them? themselves at exactly. times. Exactly. Like because when, you, yeah. when you, we've all experienced those rounds on the golf course, we rarely have the peace of mind to draw upon those very wise and helpful strategies yeah. when we're, we're ready to break a club over the <laughs> knee. Right. And so that's why it, you can't just, just wait for it to come to you. You've got to have it preloaded. You've got to have it ready to go. And we have to practice it the same way we would work on any of those hard skills that we practice, because we all know how important that part of it is to what our score is at the end. When you guys were watching golf, I, I was just I was having dinner with a guy the other night who's like a record producer, and he was talking about, you know, when I listen to music, like I can't turn off that part of my brain, and and it's really hard to just listen to the music because I'm listening to how it was recorded or I'm listening to how it was mixed and, and blah blah blah. Yeah. I'm curious when you guys watch golf, do you have? Are I'm, you able to I'm shut? Breaking, it? I'm breaking down swings. Are you time, able to shut it off, or are you just? I'm constantly? breaking down swings. Are you watching Tiger Woods strategy. and being like, "Yeah, oh, this looks right. This looks good." This. Yeah. The number of times I'll see a shot hit, and I'll be sitting with my wife or my son and daughter, and I'll call out in the air, just based on body language, where it's headed. Like, how did you know that? Well, <laughs> when you've hit a shot like that before, you kind of know the body language that someone goes through. That's just one example of yeah. that. So definitely, yeah, it's hard to take that hat off and just be a fan and, and appreciate. Do you, without naming names for you, for your for your players, do you find at times you have to balance between players that are overly reliant on you guys? <laughs> Cameron's laughing. You should see his face. <laughs> you no, know not I mean? at all. Yeah. No, 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 never, not at yeah. all, not at all. Uh, yes, there's always a balancing act that goes uh, on, particularly when you're on the PGA, LPGA, European Tour. And you've got X number of hours and to do the job of a coach versus the job of an instructor, you need to get your butt out there on the golf course and participate in a practice round, even if it's just in an observational way. So you're out there for four hours and um, sometimes you have players that just don't like to play with certain people. And that means your days are long uh, and your calendar doesn't fit or your daily schedule doesn't fit with someone else's. So yeah, it's a, it's a extreme balancing act. Uh, there are, there are coaches on all tours that carry lots of players. I'm going to say, I'm going to call lots of players more than four. Any more than four is really hard to do the job that you want to do the best job to your ability when you're a true coach versus an instructor. You named a, you named a ton of LPGA players that you work with. Mm-hmm. Do 
Does we, your teaching style change from? Can we please talk Soya and you? She's like my <laughs> my, my golf to be specific golf game crush. Like I think her game is awesome. I love her swing. Yeah. What have you? What can you tell us about for someone that's like never seen her swing and her rhythm? What can you tell us about her and what it's like to work with her? Uh, she's a brilliant person. Uh, very easy to work with. Uh, is willing to try anything. Understands that uh, things ebb and flow in the game, and will put eons of hours in just like most uh, elite level players will but hers is quite frankly next level um she's generous to everyone uh meaning myself her family her friends and the general fans that are out there as well she's uncommon uh, most of the players eh, most is probably a stretch but there are a lot of players that play professional sports generally and in this case specifically golf that um yeah, a walk around uh, with an air about them like uh, the, the fans are inconvenience. Uh, Soyeon's not that way. Mm-hmm. She appreciates the fans and, and, and realizes that she gets to do what she loves to do because of that um, and pays attention to what they're looking for, whether that's autographs or um, uh, time in conversation in pro-ams. Uh, and she's just an excellent athlete in every possible way whether that's in the gym it shows up or on the golf course it shows up and uh yeah real special from a teaching perspective do you is there any differences between the men's and women's games that that you guys work work on i'll I'll answer because i'm no longer working with any lpga players you may need to hit your runway a little bit quicker because there may be more uh, turnover. Yeah, there's yeah. certainly there's certainly turnover in the women's game. I've observed that's greater in frequency than in the men's game. That's in the caddy realm, in the manager agent realm, and also in the, in the coach instructor uh, realm. Even um, just just like extremely dumbing it down, but you know, in the men's game, it's, it seems like it's all about speed. It's all about hitting as far as you can. Like more from that side, is there anything different about? women's gamers it still feel very speed, similar speed is becoming a greater differentiator than it ever has been in the women's game it's probably catching up maybe to 10 12 15 years ago in the men's game yeah there are more female athletes that are coming out that are bigger faster and stronger at younger ages than ever before uh, there are more girls hitting it at plus 150 ball speed than ever before and the girls that have been out there for 10, 15 years are realizing that and they're probably working harder to try and find that MPH, that speed gain. Uh, outside of that, I would say that the women's game is more of a precision game but shifting in the, the power direction. And I would also say that it's untrue. I'll be the first person that kind of crushes that misconception that the women don't have the touch that the men do. They most definitely have the touch that the men do. Uh, I observe and try and change that paradigm on diversity in skill with the clients that I get to spend time with. I think that there are far more one-dimensional short games, greenside play on the LPGA tour, but that's also changing. They're, they're, um, they're kind of getting that picture that they yeah. need more diversity in their skill set. Cool. All right. We've taken up a ton of your guys' time today. We are finally going to let you let you guys off the hook. But thank you for all the awesome work today. I feel really good about the, what you guys are helping me with. Good, uh, turn that hip and, and thrust towards the ground, I think. Is that is that a good uh, way to no describe thrust. it? No thrust. No, not thrust. Yeah, just just definitely no thrust. We okay. need to feel like we're sinking towards sinking the ground. Sinking towards the ground. Yeah. Sinking to, I, I'm not a very good. I'm not a very good student. <laughs> if you can't tell. <laughs> I think I confused the thing you told me not to do with the thing you told me to do. So we we'll be clear on that. Write, I'm going to be one. Write, yeah, maybe write it down. I'm going to be one yeah. of those overly <laughs> reliant players on you guys now. So, but uh, thank you guys both for the time. This was, uh, this was an absolute blast, and look forward to uh, hopefully doing some more content with you guys in the future. Cheers. We're good time. Awesome. Thanks. 
Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect anything. 